The Guardian. Hello, I'm Vicky Frost. You're joining me from Goma on Brisbane South Bank. And I'm joined by Andrew P. Street and Ben Neutzer. And we're just heading up an escalator in the Modern Art Museum because Andrew's taking us to see a piece he particularly likes. It's a very powerful piece. Uh, it is, I think it's fair to say, a tumour. Um, <laughs> you show me the nicest things, thank you. <laughs> I, I like to think that I bring something uh, very contagious and possibly mesticizing to the process. I think it says a lot about, about me and my plans for the future in terms of my diagnostic health, that this is the piece that really spoke to me. It is uh, large lumps of wood growing out of the wall. Later, we're going to be talking to Lindy Hume from Queensland Opera, and we'll also chat with Vernon Arkey and Bruce McLean, and we turn to things we saw last night. Let's go there. What show did you see last night, Andrew? I went to see the cabaret performance The Men My Mother Loved by Tommy Bradson, which has got the germ of a really, really good idea. I think it's the sort of thing that with a bit more development and a really good musical director will be a spectacular show, but it's nowhere near ready yet. It's a great idea, it needs development. They're always the most frustrating shows to watch, aren't they? Because you can't sort of actively revel in the fact that they're bad because you know they could be good and they should be good. And instead of which, you're sort of left kind of just being a bit cross about the whole situation. What was it that didn't really come together for you? It was really just the songs. I mean, the, the idea is that it's kind of a song cycle based around Tommy's mother. And it's basically talking about her life, uh, her pregnancy with him, and, uh, and the importance of music to her, and the importance of live music during the 80s in Sydney. And it's a really good idea, and the spoken word parts are fantastic. He, I mean, Tommy's a, an amazing writer and a great performer, but the songs are just, it goes really flat. It's basically just playing through songs like a bad covers band, and the ones where they do rearrange it, they really shine but hearing a perfectly adequate version of Dragons Are You Old Enough is not great theatre. I think that's fair enough. Um, ben, did you see great theatre last night? What did you see? I did actually. I saw Psycho Beach Party, which is absolutely as fun and hilarious as I had been led to believe. I think the audience was a bit flat last night, actually. I don't know if it's because the work kind of takes all its inspiration from B-grade slasher and surfer films from the 60s through the 80s and maybe some of the references weren't quite there but I absolutely loved it. The most interesting thing about it is it's big, it's bold, it's incredibly camp. I mean the set is wall to floor, wall to carpet, leopard print. I mean that sounds like my kind of set to be honest you know. <laughs> but at the same time there's there's so much detail to it and despite the fact that on one level it's kind of shouting in your ear and screaming in your face all this camp stuff on another level it's quite gentle and the things happen in you know the slightest inflection or a little look um, so I really loved it. Um, it's funny that you had that experience with the audience because so did I, actually. I went to see um, a Western at the basement last night and it's a really charming show. It's just two people and they want to put on a Western, basically, so they're going to make the audience help them do that. And all they've got is a cowboy hat, a mouth organ and a bottle of tomato sauce. <laughs> 
and it's really good fun it's really well written but it demands quite a lot of the audience there are gunfights you have to pow pow people and, and and sort of when the hall comes over and hands you some money you do need to give it back to her and make a bit of a show of it and all of that and we were a bit rubbish as an audience and I did find, actually, in terms of my review, I felt like, well, if you put the audience so central into your show and they don't, they don't really do much, that does affect your review. It has to, because they're so part of the show. It was um, quite a tricky thing, because I loved it, but I thought it didn't quite come off last night. Uh, so, Andrew, Ben, you are shortly to go and get your planes. Thanks very much for this week and all your reviews. You can find uh, text versions of all these and more on Guardian Australia's website, where you'll also find all our festival coverage from this week. Earlier this week, in our first of a series of videos in which curators here at GOMA have talked about their favourite works, Bruce McLean, who is the Indigenous curator here at the gallery, picked Vernon Arkey's Neither Pride Nor Courage. Today, we're of course coming to you from Goma, and I have both Vernon and Bruce here with me. Hello. Hello. Vernon, this piece that Bruce highlighted is a three-panel drawing, two portraits of your great-grandfather and one of your son. I think the portrait of your great-grandfather was painted from material you found in the archive. It is. From 1938, there were these historical images that were photographed on Palm Island, which is an Aboriginal community in North Queensland. And it's basically a, a place where people were confined for no reason other than being Aboriginal and forcibly moved from to, to the island and kept there under very strict conditions. How did you sort of react to finding that material and, and then how did you decide, you know, what to do with it and how did that develop? Well, I was aware of these images that, that were part of a, uh, a scientific record and there was a lot of fairly kind of outdated ideas around race and, and eugenics back then and my, my family had acquired copies of these images previously and when I moved to Brisbane I was able to source better images from the library here and subsequently better images again a lot more detail and um, quite breathtaking detail from original scans, high-resolution scans of the original images in the Adelaide archive. What, what sort of made you want to work with the archive material then? So what made you sort of take that step from having that material to working with it, I guess? Wanting to work with the materials primarily because wanting to represent them in a much more human context. Aboriginal people in this country, we're always becoming tired of the way we're represented. We're represented as very, very narrow almost impossibly narrow stereotype and I wanted to give an idea of a contemporary people that was stripped of the romantic, the ideal, the exotic, the primitive and give an indication of how we are, not just as a people but who we are to each other. I know you've talked about sort of portraiture being subjective so is this kind of a way of creating sort of an alternative dialogue really about what it is to be Aboriginal? Yeah, the idea of that series and subsequent portraiture on that scale especially is about giving an idea of who we are to each other, presenting the Aborigine as a modern, sophisticated, technological thing to everyone else in this country for the first time. This country wants to aggressively regress us 
to a point in time that is locked in around the Stone Age. And so I wanted to show who we are as a contemporary people. To people with feeling, emotional depth, intelligence, anger, rather than being uh, reduced to a, a simple folk of the woods who are happy and content with their situation and their lot in life and um, smiling. Smiling or sad, we're only portrayed in two ways, smiling or sad. So either sorry about our situation or happy with what we've been granted, the freedoms we've been granted in this country, which are non-existent. You talked about anger there, and I think you've said uh, before, talked before about sort of using art to channel your anger. Bruce, what's your take on anger? Do you see anger in the work in this exhibition? There's, there's definitely anger in the work in the exhibition because the works in the exhibition reflect the artists and the people and there is anger in the community about a whole range of situations. You only have to look as far as Vernon's other video to get a sense of the reality in Aboriginal communities, even from the opposite end of the gallery, that soundtrack of you know, the anger in the community in Palm Island after the, the death of one of the members of the community at the hands of the police and the, the trial that happened and the way that that unfolded. You get a sense that people aren't happy to be treated this way still at this point in this nation's life. Uh, so there's definitely anger throughout the show. It's just the different ways that artists and people deal with that anger and manifest it in their works. Um, some artists you can feel it coming through palpably, whereas others uh, you kind of have to dig a little bit deeper. Um, say Bindi Cole's work, I Forgive You, and the video that sits next to it, those works are outwardly not angry and very seemingly forgiving. Uh, but when you look at the video next to it, you see the people saying I forgive you over and over again. And it's, it's not really a statement that they're talking to people or giving people this blanket forgiveness, but it's looking inside themselves that they're the sources of their anger, the sources of their hurt. So it's more about forgiving self in a way. So even those works that may not seem like they're about anger are certainly about anger, frustration and hurt. Slight change of pace. I think Proper Now is a local Brisbane collective and I think it's 10 years old next year. Um, Vernon, you were one of its founding members. Why did you guys think it was important to um, create this collection of artists as urban artists? At that time, for a long time, artists who worked within the fields of contemporary practice, agitation, anger, emotion, and that rather than passive paintings and fields that marked traditional art, those kinds of artists and that kind of art was being denigrated. We were being invalidated almost blanketly. And, and we were being shouted down. Whenever we would say something, you know, the industry and society was working very hard to ignore us, or we were being shouted down, often by white experts. And so we thought we would form a group and we would have this idea of strength in numbers was one thing, but also that we would aggressively support each other we aggressively critique each other and absolutely support each other. So if one of us would say something silly or if we disagreed, we would still fight for them, fight for their right to actually say it and be heard. 
which wasn't happening and still doesn't happen in lots of lots of areas in the arts, but in in Australia, that was the main reason. We thought we would have a bit more strength in numbers, a bit more power in our voice, both collectively and as individuals, and we wanted to really push each other into areas in our practice that we were either too afraid to go into or had not occurred to us. And how do you think it's changed you as an artist? Because presumably that environment must have changed your, your arts in some ways. Some years ago, Richard summed it up perfectly. He said that as individuals, the members of Proper Now, we would have arrived at where we are, but it would have been a lot further down the track and it would have been with a lot less support and a much smaller voice and probably much bigger battles. I mean, collectively we can pick our battles, but we can also fight bigger ones. We have strong identities individually, and, but as a group we're able to strengthen each other's identity. And uh, I, I think that, that we typify what is Aboriginal about our people. You know, the vast majority of our, the Aboriginal population lives like we do. So we typify what it means to be Aboriginal anyway. It just happens that we make art for ourselves as well. Thank you very much for joining us, Bruce and Vernon. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. You're listening to Guardian Australia's final podcast from the Brisbane Festival. I'm Vicky Frost, Guardian Australia's culture editor. And now I'm joined by Lindy Hume. Lindy is a recently appointed artistic director of Opera Queensland, having previously been the director of Sydney Festival and indeed Perth Arts Festival before that. You took on the role of Artistic Director at Queensland and in many ways that's sort of returning to your roots really. It is. I, I worked in opera for many years and then took a decade off, like you do, and worked in festivals. So I'm in the middle of Brisbane Festival right now and that feels very good and very familiar but um, I'm an opera director. I direct uh, around the world in other companies and it's great to be back in the rehearsal room with my own company now with Opera Queensland. And was that what really pulled you back to it, that sort of you just wanted to be in a rehearsal room with a company making that was, work? That was part of it. Um, I had missed, as a festival director, missed being in the room with artists and creating uh, a voice for a company. Directing a festival is a very different, very exciting proposition, but um, quite a different, a different one. Um, I like a project and this was a very interesting project, what an opera company might be to a community like Queensland, and to think laterally and use all that festival experience of other forms, other ways of thinking, other engagements with communities, and the sort of approach of of democratising the art form that I really loved and learned in festivals. And tell me about sort of keeping opera fresh. I mean, is there a tension between... I guess bringing it to new audiences, but also still creating something that kind of established audiences respond to. There's definitely a tension there. (laughs) And it's one that sometimes is frustrating and other times it's a really nice challenge. Um, Sometimes it's something that it, it almost feels like that's the whole point of me being here. Not just expanding the experience of people who know and love 
their opera, proper opera, um, but also looking at what other audiences might get out of this 400-year-old art form. So our job as an opera company right now is to expand that portfolio. Being able to do the masterworks of the Verdi's and the Mozart's and the Wagner's that any self-respecting state opera company can do, but also to stretch the boundaries of what might be called opera. I see opera simply as music and theatre, so I know that that basically opens up a whole lot more possibilities, and I see opera experiences in our future in... Spiegel tents and warehouses and and theatres. Yes, we'll go to theatres. But we're Opera Queensland, not just Opera Brisbane. So we're across the whole state. And we have amazing opera uh, opportunities uh, coming up. And indeed this year we've created new opera experiences in Townsville, in paddocks, in Jimba, in small halls, in tiny little centres all around Queensland. Queensland is the most decentralised state in Australia. And so we see the regional Queensland as a very, very big canvas for us to play on. And what do you think it does to opera to take it out of the theatre? What I like about that idea of bringing opera to people in in different modes is that it can take them by surprise. Opera is a 400-year-old art form that comes with a certain amount of psychological baggage and sometimes you need to deliver on that expectation of the grand gesture and the really big scenic environment and the big theatre statements, big musical statements with big orchestras and we will indeed do that. Indeed, Next year we've just launched a couple of really big uh, theatre projects, one of them with the Brisbane Festival, Philip Glass is perfect American so we need to be able to do that but at the same time we also need to take people a little bit by surprise and give them a sense of opera being not perhaps what they expect to subvert that. What changes what happens to an opera when you take it outside a theatre? Well opera is very surprisingly malleable as a form I mean sometimes you need what I call the architecture the architecture of the big numbers of people in an orchestra or the architecture of a big number of people in a chorus and of course we need to be able to deliver on that big grand gesture the big uh, kind of uber force musically and theatrically but operas come in all shapes and sizes and for me it's it is about music theater and I think our contemporary opera companies today's opera companies should be able to speak in a range of vernaculars and um, I see in some forms cabaret as, as opera, vaudeville as opera. We're working with a contemporary dance company this year, Dance North from uh, Townsville. We're working with festivals, with theatre companies. There aren't the boundaries, perhaps, that people expect, and I think that's our journey. We want to try and give people a range of opera experiences. The linking thread all the way through this is, of course, the human voice and narrative. There's a sense of telling people a story through voice, through music. That is the sort of essence of what opera is. And I'd like to try and bend and stretch that as much as as possible. I know the best opera I think I've seen, or my favourite opera I've seen, was I saw La Boheme in Soho Theatre in London, tiny theatre, and then the second act, you went up to have your interval drinks, and then basically the performance started up happening around you again. And it was absolutely charming. It took down all those barriers that 
I do think sometimes that we can feel a bit standoffish, mm, you know, a little bit grand. Yeah. And it totally transformed it, yes, I think. It does. And in fact, we, we just did our season launch last week in the Spiegel tent here on the river. And we launched our new production of Bohem in the tent with the characters all kind of coming alive in, and singing the Act Two ensemble in the tent. And as you say, it absolutely felt completely right because you realise that you as somebody going to a bar in a in a festival are exactly those people it's not so far the life experience of the bohemians in paris in that period and your own experience of that particularly in that spiegel tent is not so far away my absolute aim with everything we do is either psychologically or or perception wise or in actual physical uh, proximity is to remove the barrier between the artist and the audience and if they can be right there in your face all the better whether that's metaphorically or whether that's symbolically or emotionally or actually physically right there near you then that's what we're after it does something to the music as well doesn't it i mean you know, that proximity to people singing, mm. it's sort of absolutely awe-inspiring. Yeah, people are always a little bit amazed at how much noise actually comes out of a, a singer's mm. instrument, which, of course, is their body, especially when uh, opera singers these days are usually very fit, very uh, physical people, and then there's those big voices. I always feel that I've got the best job as the director of, of a company and also directing shows that I get all those fantastic rehearsals where the singers are literally metres away from me and I get all of that passion and emotion. So I feel very sad to say goodbye to it when I put it into a, a theatre and other people get to share that. <laughs> then, of, then, of course, my um, passion turns to the audiences and I can be found lurking in foyers and in, <laughs> in box offices listening for, for people's genuine comments about about the work that we do. And tell us about Philip Glass and, and sort of what's happening next year. You, you touched upon that. Well, we're very excited to be working with Brisbane Festival on The Perfect American. We're excited for lots of reasons. We're excited because this is uh, a brand new piece. It was only premiered this year. And for it to be coming straight from Madrid and London to, to Brisbane, to be part of that kind of zeitgeist moment, that's pretty exciting and the opera itself is such an interesting idea this exploration of the final hours and the final kind of musings of of Walt Disney and all that kind of connection to uh, a discussion on the American dream the American iconography of Disney and including artists like Andy Warhol public figures like Abraham Lincoln appear in it it's quite a hallucinogenic project it has a quality as it's meant to have of of a sort of mad dream or a mad kind of memory um i'm absolutely thrilled at that it's such a fantastic creative team great international and australian cast it's going to be an amazing opportunity for our chorus for our orchestra queensland symphony orchestra and our audiences you know this to see something as fresh off the page of a great artist like philip glass and uh, with these wild ideas and this wild visual theater bursting through the proscenium I think that's a very very exciting thing and for us for Opera Q it's a really important statement to make that we are part of the global discussion global uh, world of ideas and I think it shows a different face of our company the grand opera that we talked about the Bohems and the Traviatas we do that but it's very important to be able to say we do music of our time as well. Thank you Lindsay. My pleasure.
You can join Opera Queensland for their Opera on the River Stage Spectacular on Saturday night from 7 o'clock, which is in the Botanic Gardens. Bring a picnic and a blanket and uh, no money because it's free, marvellously. This is the final podcast and we're beginning to wrap up our coverage of the festival now. So it just remains for me to thank all the Guardian Australia team. Our critics on this show, Andrew P. Street, Ben Neutzer, Van Badham and Catherine Viner. Our head of multimedia, Christian Bennett and our intern, Molly Glassy. This week, the podcast has been produced by Jesse Cox. I'm Vicky Frost. Thanks very much for listening. The Guardian. Thank you.